Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and I'm joining you this week uh, on National Cupcake Day to uh, bring you all of the wonderful news that's been going on in the IT industry for the last week with maybe just a little bit of icing on top. Um, joining me is my favorite co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show today. A bombini, Tom. Bombini. Hello, good day, kind of thing. Yeah. Oh well, I learned something new today. So happy mento. Happy uh, bombini to everybody out there who's joining us as well. Um, we do have a few news stories that came up. I'm sure you might have heard about one of them on the main news, and that's how you know it's big stuff is when the non-tech news is talking about it. But we'll get to that in just a minute. We have a few stories that we wanted to make sure that you were aware of as well. Um, starting off with uh, everybody's favorite speaker trigger word. Because if you go all the way back to the grand old days of the internet, if you wanted to know what the best, top, most popular sites were, you needed to ask Alexa. No, not the AI powering the Amazon Echo speaker that possibly could have just gone off and asked you if, what you wanted. No, this is Alexa.com, which was the top page ranking and reach site. It was a big deal to be ranked highly on this page. It meant that you were in the know and, and everybody wanted to do your stuff. Well, guess what? It's not going to be happening anymore because in a recent announcement, the team behind Alexa.com announced that they will be sunsetting the service effective May 1st, 2022. So about six months from now, um, the announcement comes as they basically said, we're not going to be taking any more subscriptions to our service. Um, and the analytics dashboards will slowly be phased out over the course of the next few months. Now, Stephen, I'm kind of wistful for the days of Alexa.com because, you know, it kind of made us feel like it was a big deal to be on the rankings. But um, what does this mean about the fact that maybe we have services that kind of duplicate what it is? And my biggest question is, what's going to happen to that domain name now that it looks like it may be vacated? You know, thanks, Tom. And actually, there's actually a huge interesting story behind this. So let me let me go back into the mists of time in the 90s, uh, early days of the internet. So Alexa was actually founded by, by Brewster Kale, who you may know as the founder of the Internet Archive, which full disclaimer, I am a proud supporter of, and I donate to that nonprofit every single year. Um, it was originally founded as a way to basically search the internet, categorize the entire web, and, um, and, and allow it to be searchable. Sound familiar? Uh, it really didn't compete with the search engines of the time, though, and Amazon bought it in 1999 uh, and kind of transformed it into the uh, internet ranking service that we know today. Uh, another fun fact is that originally Alexa was actually named for the Library of Alexandria, the famous historic uh, library, one of the wonders of the world in Egypt. Uh, and so in a way... Uh, Alexa it was the original Internet Archive. Anyway, um, it gave us the name of all of Amazon's smart devices. It became a subsidiary of Amazon, and eventually it kind of outlived its usefulness. As you said, it, there was a time that it was really kind of fun to see what your Alexa ranking was and to look at the Alexa rankings of other sites and so on. Uh, but these days, there's so many bizarre ins and outs of SEO and all that kind of stuff that Alexa doesn't really serve a purpose anymore, except to wake up your smart speaker. So I'm not super surprised. I actually am amazed that they let the domain name go on this long. But, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss it. I'm going to miss having uh, that little bit of history there. 
And, uh, and finally, I'll just give a shout out. If you value the Internet Archive, please do consider some, uh, donating uh, to that wonderful Internet resource uh, founded by the same person as Alexa. Tom, uh, let's turn to another story that we didn't talk about last week. So as previously reported, um, Jessica Rosenworcel was uh, up to be appointed to the FCC for another term. And last week, the U.S. Senate not only renewed her appointment, but made her the first female chair of the FCC. Rosenworcel has been serving as the interim chair since uh, the departure of Ajit Pai earlier this year. Uh, the appointment means that the board now is two to two with members of both political parties. This move is widely seen as a sign that there will be opposition to the nomination of uh, Gigi Song, who is seen as a more reform-minded member. Uh, Tom, what are your thoughts on this historic appointment? So the first thing is congratulations to Jessica Rosenworcel for, for making this historic milestone. Um, I've always been a big fan of hers. I think that she is kind of a as middle of the road as you can be in the FCC, because it always feels like a lot of the things in the FCC are very politically charged with the, the, the split of commissioners and things like that. You know, we've seen with Ajit Pai and Tom Wheeler and, and a lot of other things. So I, I'm very happy that this happened because there was, there was a lot of concern that if they didn't get it done, like very, very soon that her appointment would expire. And then that could lead for lead to issues down the road. I'm also very happy that they recognized that she's put a lot of work into her time on the FCC and being elevated to the chairperson of, of the uh, FCC is a, is a huge deal. But you're right, as, as we covered earlier in the rundown, I think that this absolutely is a big sign to the rest of the uh, folks out there that they are really going to push back on uh, Gigi Son's uh, appointment. And again, when you look at the track record that Gigi Son has with uh, her viewpoints on monopolies and uh, and busting up some of these giant conglomerations, she is very much going to be one who kind of is poking and prodding and, and probably is going to raise a lot of concern about larger tech mergers. I, I would argue that if Gigi Son had been on the FCC, that that AT&T would never have been able to pull off some of the acquisitions that they've they've made recently. Um, but that means that, you know, we're kind of be, we're going to kind of be deadlocked until either her nomination fails. Ultimately, maybe it goes through, who knows that politics is, is what it is, or, you know, that some, she steps back and someone who's a little bit more of a compromised candidate gets appointed. Um, a, as a reminder for those folks out there, the way that the FCC effectively works is whoever the current president is gets to pick the commissioners as they're renewed. And it almost always ends up that whoever the president is, their political party has a three to two majority. So you typically see these kinds of swings every four to eight years where one party will be in power and then another one will be in power. And it just it's a little bit of a dance. But the problem for me, ultimately, is that it does cause certain people who are very good at their jobs to either feel like they're being pushed out because they're not, um, you know, not wanted because they don't have the right letter after their name on the political registration thing. Um, but again, in this particular case, no matter what happens with Gigi Son down the road, they got this one right with Jessica Rosenworcel. And I look forward to her leadership of the FCC going forward. All right, Stephen. Um, last week was a pretty big one. If you were Mitchie, Mitchell Hashimoto and that little cloud company that he owns called uh, HashiCorp, uh, the software provider debuted on NASDAQ with an IPO that was valued at $80 a share. And that move 
if you add up all of the stock that was offered, means that they're valued at around $14 billion. The offering raised about $1.2 billion in total for HashiCorp, and the price of the stock has actually gone up since then. It's trading at around $85, $88 a share, which means that investors are really hot to own this little piece of, well, the software that kind of runs everything in the cloud. Um, and it's been interesting to see this journey of HashiCorp from kind of, you know, a company that's very focused on providing open source tools, building on them, offering support, being integrated into so many services that we love and use every day. But Stephen, is this a good move for HashiCorp, given all of the high, um, the IPOs that we've seen that have gotten a lot of press, but maybe fizzled out? Is this kind of the converse of that? Yeah, I think really it it is, because here's a little secret about HashiCorp. Uh, they actually make and sell products that people really love. So, you know, the company essentially is a darling. And if and if you're not really familiar with with HashiCorp or its products, um, then uh, let me uh, please uh, allow me to introduce uh, introduce them to you. So, essentially, this is a company that does have sort of a uh, freemium open source business model, like many of the others that we've talked about, including. Uh, notable companies like Docker and, um, you know, Nginx and Red Hat, people like that. The difference is that uh, HashiCorp has a variety of products. They're pretty focused on specific use cases in the modern uh, web DevOps world. And they are absolutely loved because they're essentially developed by and for developers and DevOps folks who, who really need to use these things. So for example, one of the um, products that they are best known for is Terraform, which is a uh, infrastructure as code uh, platform, which means that it helps you to configure physical infrastructure using code, sort of like you would do in the cloud. Um, another one that's very popular is Console, which is a uh, networking platform as well as Vagrant, which is a, a platform for building and maintaining portable software. And all of these products, as I said, they're very focused, they're very popular, and they've actually become a key part of the uh, infrastructure lingo in, in the DevOps world. And in fact, even if you don't uh, know them, I'm sure that basically every modern piece of application that you use uses these. So that for me is a big differentiator here. So rather than trying to build like a thing that does everything, they've built useful tools, you know, oh, it's a screwdriver, it's a wrench, it's a hammer. And those things are actively being used by people from, you know, open source and, and cloud all the way into the enterprise. Uh, in fact, Terraform has become one of the most popular ways that people in enterprises are provisioning servers and uh, infrastructure these days. So uh, essentially, this company has built a nice uh, line of products. Uh, they are loved by users. They are uh, a great. Uh, they have a great ability to connect with the next generation developers and uh, open source advocates and so on. And they've raised a good but not excessive amount of funding. By my understanding, they've raised about three hundred fifty million dollars in five funding rounds. So essentially, uh, all this means is that we've got a company that's actually done a pretty nice job. They have um, not raised too much money. They've got good products. 
They just did an IPO where they basically raised enough money to basically make everybody happy. And they're going to continue to uh, go out there and try to push this stuff. The other thing that HashiCorp is doing, by the way, that I'll point out is they're very smartly hiring uh, enterprise veterans from IT companies into uh, the company to help market and sell these products in the future. And that, I think, is going to be the thing that really uh, reaps dividends, if you will pardon the pun, the financial pun, uh, for the company in the long term. Because essentially, they're, they're hiring people who know how to sell to people who actually have real money. And that, I think, is really going to be the differentiator for this. So overall, uh, congratulations, HashiCorpers. Uh, it couldn't have happened to a nicer group of people. It couldn't have happened to a better, uh, more useful set of tools. And I really look forward to seeing where this goes in the future. Tom, uh, one of the largest timekeepers on the planet is on the clock for ransomware. Kronos Private Cloud posted a message to their customers this week saying that they've been affected by a major ransomware infection. Tellingly, the message also said that customers needed to move to using a backup solution for timekeeping. Kronos is the primary workforce time solution for a large number of businesses, including Sainsbury's and Land Rover, as well as a number of hospitals and government agencies. Impacts are unknown at this time, but uh, might affect payroll systems that integrate with Kronos, as well as uh, work scheduling in the near future. How bad is this, Tom, uh, and how important are these services? I don't know. How much do you like getting paid or knowing how much work you're supposed to do next week? Um, this, to me, given everything else that's been going on for the last week, had had the huge vulnerability not come out, this probably would have been a lot bigger news. But it's one of those under the radar things because it's not like a big flashing light, like, you know, gas prices are going to go up or the price of bacon is is skyrocketing because, you know, something happened or I saw a story the other day about there's a cream cheese shortage on the East coast because the, one of the processors got hit with ransomware. This is messing with people's money. So, so Kronos private cloud is effectively like this private cloud entity that runs a lot of timekeeping services. And, and yeah, like Sainsbury's uh, Land Rover, uh, the city of Cleveland, all of their workers clock in and out on Kronos. And so if you can't clock in and out, you don't know how much you worked, right? If you don't know how much you worked, you can't run payroll. Why would payroll be important to run right now? Mm, Christmas. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're you, to the the ransomware authors out there. I, I will remind you, you are literally taking Christmas away from some people. Now there are workarounds in place, and that's what Kronos basically said in this email. Like they weren't hopeful of like you know we don't expect any service disruptions. They're like, yeah, it could be a few weeks before we're back up and running. Go to your backup plan, which of course is probably going to be punch cards. And, you know, clock in and out. Like, I can remember using one of those things. The, the, the fancy, you know, just check in on your phone when you get to work kind of thing is, you know, fairly modern for people who kind of rely on needing to punch that clock. But to me, it, it kind of represents this bigger problem of why would I go after these little targets? Why would I go after, a, 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 you know, a pipeline company or, a pay or these other things when I can hit something that like 50 companies rely on? Like if, if I take out like a, a meat packing facility, oh, well, hamburger meat's going to go up next week. If I knock out the timekeeping functionality for a supermarket and a car company and like the Santa Clara, you know, municipal government, do you think they're going to put pressure on the company to pay up? I know I would. So they're attacking these soft targets, these integrations that quite honestly, we may not even know we've had for a long time. 
And I think that that's going to be kind of a, a theme going into 2022 is let's find some more of these really critical targets to, to aim at and then kind of make them the, you know, we're going to really mess it up and then we're going to make your customers force you to deal with us. And I think that that's going to be big. And the problem there, though, for those companies, or I'm sorry, for those attackers that are doing that, is that that's going to bring down a big mess on top of them because it's going to be involving the FBI. It's probably going to involve Cyber Command. Um, so, you know, you only get to get lucky once with one of those attacks. And then you better hide because they're not going to stop coming for you until they get a hold of you. Tom, let's take a closer look now at, frankly, the elephant in the room, the big story from this week, and that is our friend Log4j. And um, I should point out that the uh, Log4j is the utility that's affected. It's actually called Log4Shell, which is the the exploit. But uh, most of you have probably heard about this because, frankly, this isn't just the news of the week. It might end up being the news of the year, the news of the decade. So let's get into this. It was not a good week for security pros all over the world. Alibaba Cloud disclosed a vulnerability in a Java logging service named Log4j. The first reports were seen as vulnerabilities in Minecraft servers, but the attack surface quickly expanded as the number of programs and platforms that incorporate Log4j grew. The attack involves passing specifically created uh, messages to the logging server that allows for Java code to be executed arbitrarily even after the logging message has been written. The security world has been on high alert trying to patch the vulnerabilities as they've been found and companies have been scrambling to figure out what is affected. The move has also raised questions about the ways that companies leverage open source software in their products. Tom, this is being referred to as one of the largest exploits in years. Like I said, the exploit of the decade. What are your thoughts about this? So I spent most of the weekend with a bowl of popcorn in one hand and a shot glass in the other because I was just waiting for all of the shoes to drop on this. Like we started hearing about it at first because Minecraft servers were getting patched all over the place, which my kids told me about, but I didn't care. And then it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Now, here's the funny thing. So if you want to trace this back, there are people who have found the viability of this exploit during Black Hat talks like I want to say in 2016. So like they've known that this is a possibility for like the last five years. But what's happened is, is that there's been some variables that have been set to be um, valid to create this exploit and they're on by default. So effectively what's happened is, is this log4j or logforge, depending on how you want to pronounce it, is effectively in- integrated into a large number of Java platforms. Why? Because it was free. It was free and it was easy to install and it gave you logging if you didn't already have it. And what you do is you pass it a specifically crafted URL in the log message that allows you to do things like looking up Java directory names, LDAP, and LDAP takes the play, it takes the form of an HTTP lookup. So what makes it super nefarious is, is that you can cause this arbitrary code execution to parse and execute malware loaded on a URL somewhere. And that's what makes it devilishly clever. You change the user agent of your browser. You go to a site, it writes the log message, and you can force it to download and run code and essentially own that server and every server that runs Logforge in that environment. 
it's a mess. Like I was just looking at the bulletins of people, um, friends of mine who work in the industry, like that was their weekend, was working with their developers to identify the affected versions, find out what the patches needed to be to, to apply them, test them and get them shipped out the door so that when everybody showed up on Monday morning this week, they had something to do if they weren't already patching all overnight. And linked in the show notes is a notification from NIST saying one of the patches that got pushed out didn't work. It didn't fix the problems. I mean, I've seen people that are writing specific URL filters for their uh, edge security gateways to prevent people from passing the traffic in. And like you're you're seeing some really creative exploitation stuff. So like it's it's saying, oh, well, if I see a, a request that includes the letters JDNP, I'm going to drop it because that's attempting to exploit. Well, then they're like, OK, well, I'm going to call a specific library that inserts a lowercase j so that it evades the the regex filters like uh, friends of mine were saying that there were their firewalls were getting hammered, not by attackers, but by security scanning services that were looking to ex to write reports about this exploit and be able to figure out how many affected systems there were. I can't tell you how many FU insert name of company messages I saw this weekend. So this is a huge deal. And, and we're not only just talking about the services that we know we need to fix. How many of these things are being leveraged that we don't know we need to fix, that are running older versions, that are not maintained anymore? And how many of those versions are being used that you don't have access to? Because remember, this program could be inserted into a Java runtime environment, a Java dashboard, and you'd never know it was there until you get a notification. Oh, hey, by the way, you need to patch this. And that's a big deal because this version may be um, exploitable but then they issue an update after they patched it out that uses the old version because nobody was paying attention to what they were doing and they re-exploit it. Like, that's a massive problem to me. And that doesn't even get into the open source implications because the big deal here is that LogForge was being maintained by three people and they're doing it part-time. I know it's part of the Apache Software Foundation now and a lot of people are like, oh, there's an Apache exploit. No, 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 Apache owns stuff. But like, you're literally taking advantage of these people's hard work and you're yelling at them. Oh, you know, you turn this thing on by default and you've made us all vulnerable. And yet you never bothered to give back to the code and do the audits and find out that this is something that needs to be fixed. And yeah, you can trigger the variable and shut it off and it actually just works fine. But these are the big issues. Going back to the Chronos story that we just covered, why would I attack Cisco's Nexus dashboard? when I could attack a service that runs on Cisco Nexus dashboard and also exploit half of their iOS code and half of their, their uh, voice platforms and any one of their other dashboard products. I mean, that's gonna be hundreds, if not thousands of project hours dedicated to downloading patches, testing them, installing them, verifying them, and then continually making sure that everything is working the way that it's supposed to. Like it just, I'll say this, I, I've been asked by several people in my personal life that are that know I work on computer stuff. And my response is, boy, I am glad I don't have to deal with this stuff right now, because it's enormous. I mean, Stephen, you've, you're an old system administrator. Could you imagine having to update all those packages and then hunt down to make sure that you didn't miss any? Yeah, this is a big, it's a big challenge for a lot of people, because here's the thing. Um, ask yourself, you're, if, you're, if you're in IT or if you're in applications, uh, how many Java applications do you run for your business that are exposed on the internet? Uh, chances are you don't know the answer. 
because chances are you don't actually know what language everything you use is written in. Uh, I will say that uh, increasingly uh, web applications are written in things like PHP and Python, and those are not affected by Logforge or Log4Shell or anything like that. But how do you know? And how do you know that there's not a Java component buried in there? There certainly could be. So for example, um, I was reading this morning, uh, the WordPress uh, community is hesitant to say WordPress is immune from this, even though WordPress is written in PHP, because there are cases where there could be some Java somewhere in a plugin or in an integration package or something that might be using this that might be vulnerable. And so they don't want to go on record saying we're immune to this because what if they're not? Every piece of software is in that same situation. You know, your software may be some cool ultra-modern thing written in Go or Rust or something like that, but there could be a little Java thing over there in the corner that's running this that could be exploited. And the thing is, now that it's known, and now that it's known how easy it is to exploit this, those exploits are coming. As you said, Tom, too, the other challenge is that a lot of this stuff is sort of buried beneath layers and layers and layers of software. So in that way, it reminds me of the recent NPM exploit that we heard where a package manager, uh, you know, exploit was included in a package. Uh, We've seen this many, many times, and I am not anti-open source. In fact, I am very, very pro-open source. The problem is that the internet is stitched together from this library and this tool and this other library and this other tool maintained by this person or that person or this company or that other company. Many of it is out of date. Some of it's not being actively managed. And people throw a fit when something is taken down because nobody wants to manage it. Nobody wants to dedicate their time. And that's especially true of things like logging that is like the most boring possible thing in in, in programming. So nobody wants to work on this stuff. Nobody wants to keep it up. Uh, and, And then suddenly somebody finds an exploit. The other thing that's a little scary about this is that a lot of the mitigations that I'm hearing are basically eggshell mitigations. And uh, those of you in the networking and security space know what I'm talking about here. So for example, uh, our friends at Cloudflare have now upgraded their web application firewalls for paying customers to block this exploit. And that's wonderful. Thank you for doing that. I'm glad that you're able to do that. and And I do believe that that's going to slow down the propagation of these exploits. But it's possible to get around a web application firewall. And also, what about all the other sites that don't have this stuff? Or as Tom says, what about when we forget about this stuff in a month or a year or five years, and uh, somebody says, I don't know what this rule was for. I'm going to turn that off. And then suddenly it becomes exploitable again because nobody actually fixed the core issue, which is that there was a vulnerability in the core package. So yes, it is wonderful to update your web application firewall. It is wonderful to update any of the other mitigations that can be done to stop this thing. But ultimately, you got to fix the software. Now, one of the other big problems with this uh, vulnerability is that it's not just log for shell. It's also log for exfiltrating data. So let's talk about that for a minute. Essentially, if you can craft a uh, LDAP request that has access to variables running in a Java environment, think of the variables that you could exfiltrate by just hitting a specially crafted URL. And this is happening widely. In other words, uh, let's say I've got a variable called password and it contains my password. I can hit 
a log4j or a logging application with a specially crafted URL that will say, send a request, an LDAP request to mysecretpassword.evilhacker.net. And then evilhacker.net just has to look in his, in his logs and say, oh, hey, that's uh, the secret password right there. There are a whole bunch of exploits like that that are happening too, thanks to this thing. A lot of those are also being mitigated, but it's harder and harder to mitigate those. So uh, finally, I will say that another thing that we're seeing um, related to the mitigation angle um, is that a lot of uh, companies are starting to ask their suppliers if they are vulnerable to this. In fact, we at Gestalt IT received a, uh, a notification from one of our major software, you know, enterprise software companies asking if we were affected by LogForge and we had to fill out a thing and send it in and certify that it was correct to the best of our knowledge. Um, that's awesome as well. I'm glad that they're doing that. I really, truly am glad that they're doing that. But the problem is you're going to get a lot of next, next, next okay on something like that. Because quite frankly, <laughs> who knows who's affected? You know, if you're sending me out a survey that says, am I affected? And I say no, does that mean I'm not affected? Or does that mean I just don't know I'm affected? Or maybe it just means that I don't want to talk to you. Uh, so it's good that they're kind of trying to raise the awareness of this, but that doesn't really solve the problem. So we'll see long-term what this means, whether it really is the vulnerability of the decade or whether it's just another, you know, another critical vulnerability out there. Uh, but right now it looks pretty bad. Yeah. And when you consider the fact that we spent months this year talking about solar winds and the fact that that was, you know, purposefully exploited for specific targets that they knew they were going after, this is much more widespread than that. And, and like you said, the more creative that people are getting with things like data exfiltration and being able to, to open more doors to get into your environment, it just keeps adding to the pain that we're going to have to deal with because you're right. The only solution to this is two-pronged. One, we've got to patch the bad software. We, we absolutely have to do that. And, and that in and of itself is, is a monumental task. But then we have to understand why we were able to be exploited in the first place. How were these things able to get in or in, in the case you were just raised, how were they able to get things out? And that's a bigger, more complicated conversation to have because now we have to audit things like exfiltration rules. What's allowed to go out from whom? Like, like we, we're gonna have to spend a lot of time and, and I hate to say it, but there are a lot of companies that are gonna go out there and say, well, we have all the solutions to your problems. You just click this box right here that says, you know, um, disable LogForge um, problems and they'll all go away. Yeah, but we don't understand what you're actually doing. And, and that's the, the key there is that you have to do this. And so we're about to go in, we're about to go into what would normally be considered the change freeze window, right? We're not touching anything until the end of the year because we don't want to take anything down. Well, we kind of have to take some things down now to patch them, but you should use the time while those servers are rebooting to examine all of your policies and procedures to figure out what's been going on and how this was allowed to happen because while this particular vulnerability we couldn't have seen it coming even if you were at black hat five years ago it's the way that it was able to do the things that it did that should be concerning to you maybe you can't patch those maybe you can't create policy that will prevent that from happening in the future when the next open source module that's maintained by two people on a sunday gets exploited but if you can't, then you need to at least make sure you document why 
so that you're not spending your entire weekend patching servers and writing web application firewall rules to keep your company from getting stolen out from underneath you by Monday morning. All right, well, that just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. I want to thank you very much for tuning in and joining us. We're here every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time with all of the news that's happened uh, over the last week. Now, like I said, we're getting into the slower period of the year. People are kind of wrapping things up. Uh, folks are even taking off a little bit of time for, uh, for, the, fall, for the holiday break. Um, we're still going to be here. We're going to be keeping an eye on the news because, you know, maybe something like that whole SolarWinds thing will drop or, or maybe LogForge 2 will come out. Who knows? Um, but, you know, Stephen, what are some of the things that you're working on that people should be uh, checking out? Well, we just uh, wrapped up uh, the recordings for our uh, Utilizing AI podcast. So please do check those out at utilizing-ai.com. And for me, I'm just putting the finishing touches on our Cloud Field Day event in February. So February 16th, 18th. If you're interested in DevOps and cloud and Kubernetes and containers and all that sort of thing, uh, do mark your calendar for Cloud Field Day. And similarly, if you're interested in networking, Tom, what are you working on? So we just finished our first networking field day focused on service providers. So if you want to go to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash techfieldday, you can totally check out the videos from there. There were a lot of great presentations, and we'll be talking about them a little bit over the coming weeks. But we're also getting ready for our next networking field day event, not focused on service providers. It'll be a more general networking field day that'll be happening at the end of January, 26th, 27th, and 28th. We have a huge lineup of companies and a great lineup of delegates. So if you head over to techfieldday.com, you can check out who's going to be there. Um, we're also, uh, I'll be publishing uh, my uh Last episode for the year of Tom Versations, we'll be talking a little bit about everybody's favorite three-letter internet acronym that isn't DNS. That would be BGP. So you'll definitely want to check that out on gestaltit.com. And of course, we'll be releasing uh, some more on-premise IT roundtable episodes. So go to gestaltit.com slash podcast if you want to check those out. You know, if the, uh, the relatives are getting on your nerves in the middle of Christmas and you just need to zone out and get to your happy place, there's no better happy place than listening to your favorite episodes of The Rundown or the On-Premise IT Roundtable or Conversations or the Checksum, uh, because we have all of the content that you need to make it through another boring holiday party. All right, we're going to wrap it up today, but I hope that you'll be able to join us for our next episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Um, and if you have any questions or comments or you have a news story that you'd like us to cover on the rundown, make sure you tweet us. Uh, we are at Gestalt IT on Twitter. If you'll put the hashtag rundown in there, we'll know what to look for. And uh, you may hear us giving you credit for bringing us an interesting story that we love to talk about. So until next time, uh, for Tom Hollingsworth, Stephen Foskett, and the rest of the Gestalt IT community, thank you very much for joining us. Have a great day and an exciting week. <laughs>